You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. So I recorded a telephone conversation with my friend Grant Williams. I hope you'll enjoy this. Grant, your experience running Real Vision TV has opened your eyes to a whole host of different really interesting characters. Given that you're speaking to some of the sharpest minds in the industry, I wonder, is there one particular topic that seems prevalent in the current market environment that the smart money is looking at? And if so, what is that? So, Chris, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I um, I do get to travel around uh, in the last sort of 18 months, two years, talking to as many smart people as I can as part of as part of Real Vision. And uh, the things that I'm, I'm seeing and hearing are really, I mean, I, I mean, I guess they're no surprise in many ways. I mean, people are incredibly generous with their time and incredibly generous with their insight. And I think a lot of that, there is, there's a certain amount of camaraderie in this business. I think when you're in the trenches, everybody knows that, that everyone knows what it's like. And so you don't mind sharing information, but perhaps more importantly, I've really got this sense that people more than ever are open to discussing ideas with people because they're finding they just don't have a clear direction themselves. There are so many confusing signals, more people you can talk to and the more uh, knowledge you can gather in trying to shape your own opinions, the better off they're going to be. And, and we've had this, we've had this outside agent inserted into pretty much every decision from an investment standpoint that anybody on the planet makes every day. And that's uh, our good friends at the central bank. So you kind of get a bit tired of talking about them, um, but they are a very clear and present danger, and they're something that we have to factor in. As as, as the events last week in Japan only went to prove. So as I've gone around talking to people there are a few things that um that that really sort of strike me as as being common thinking uh which can be dangerous true but uh, uh but I'll, I'll just run you through a few of them first of all um people with money tend to realize that uh people without money and that by that i'm referring specifically to governments are coming after them it's a very hostile environment as as my uh as my great friend and former boss Steve Diggle said to me in, in one of our interviews, he said, you know, it's never a good time to be poor, but this is a really bad time to be rich. And I think he's absolutely right because uh, you've got a, a host of bankrupt governments all around the world who need money, and there are, there's a very small number of people that have it. So you know, smart, wealthy people understand that governments are coming for them. They're, they're trying to make things difficult. They're, they're going to um, get grabby. They're going to run raise taxes, they're going to impose capital controls because they have to. I mean, they've, it's a mess they've got themselves into, but they are going to have to because there is a finite supply of real capital. There's, there's plenty of printed capital, but there's nothing backing them. So in order for this to happen, there has to be massive uh, uh, debt defaults or they have to get the assets from somewhere. And, and uh, but smart people understand that's what's happening. As a result of that, there's a lot of focus on on gold, and perhaps we can talk a bit a bit more at length, uh, length about that in a, in, a, in a little while. But the other thing that I've noticed is a great desire to own cash, which is really doesn't kind of make much sense uh, instinctively because here we are with a negative interest rate environment, which is uh, only going to get worse before it gets better. And yet, supposedly, smart money wants to hold cash, which is a guaranteed loss. And I think that's instructive because there's a real reason why 
governments are trying to push people away from owning cash. And, and any time the government is specifically trying to direct you away from a certain investment, you really need to look at it because there's a good chance that's exactly the investment you should own. And so owning cash with a with a nominal slightly negative yield where you can guarantee that if you hold it for a year, you're going to lose you know, half a percent or maybe one percent um, is supposed to drive capital out of bank accounts, out of savings, out from under mattresses and, and put it to work. But the reality is uh, the guys who see what's happening here want to own cash uh, for the optionality it provides, which is worth a lot more than half a percent or 1%. And if you get, as we've seen to the start of the year, a major downdraft in stock markets, well, the, the half a percent, the 1% you're going to give up holding cash versus the 20% discount you can buy certain assets at in, in a bear market actually makes that half to 1% um, well worth giving up. So a lot of people looking to own cash, uh, a lot of people looking to own assets, but that is something that, uh, by assets I mean real assets, that's a play that we've seen we've seen going on for five or six years now. So that's kind of had a decent run. I don't know if it's on its last legs, but certainly um, you know, cap rates in real estate are getting to levels where you really have to think twice about buying and people are starting to move into markets like uh, Germany, um, when I was working at Volpez, we, we bought a bunch of uh, real estate, just just regular apartments, nothing fancy, just working class apartments in eastern Germany because the German housing market hadn't seen any real price inflation for you know, decades. Yeah, That's I remember, starting, us, I remember yeah. us discussing that back in March when we, were, when we were together down in New Zealand. Yeah, ex- exactly. And it was just a, almost like an arbitrage and yield. A, there had to be capital gains to the extent that they had in um, outlying areas in Germany um, and or so within Europe, um, and then the yield differential was better. And you had a country which is by all uh, one of the better countries in Europe, albeit one with immense problems. So, as you've been talking, Grant, I just and there's a couple of things that just popped up in my in my head. You know, you're discussing the the fact that people are going towards cash even in, an, in a negative interest rate environment. But it, what you have really from a psychological perspective is that he who loses the least gains is kind of the analysis in that if you have a deflationary environment and you have cash, naturally you're on the up. So even if your cash is costing and you're losing two points on your cash, but the market goes down 10, you've essentially, you've acquired market share if you can swap back out of it. And then as I kind of think through a market psyche of that, it's no longer a growth-driven market. It's a fear-driven market. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that. And I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that mindset is correct. If you tell me what my maximum downside is and I can quantify uh, the maximum downside in one asset, which is cash, which you can. Obviously, you worry about bail-ins and you worry about stuff like that, but there are ways of mitigating those. But if you tell me that, okay, if you hold that asset, your maximum downside is X, uh, okay, fine. And that's somewhere I can start, and I can start to then work out risk reward of other assets. But the, but that mindset is a difficult one to shift. You know, once people get into that mindset, and you might go into this thinking, well, if the market falls ten percent, uh, I'm going to take my cash that I'm earning negative half a percent on, and I'm going to put it in the market. But of course, when you go down ten percent in a matter of a few days, people decide to hold back, and they're going to they're going to wait and see if this thing falls further, which which it, it has done, and now we're seeing a bit of a bounce. But the news flow is decidedly poor at the moment. It's tough to see from a risk reward standpoint why you would want to own markets up here as opposed 
the cash and the option that they fall further. So, you know, I think I think your point's very valid, but that that deflationary mindset, once you get into that, that he who loses the least wins, um, it's a very tough thing to shake. I mean, that's that's essentially that that's a, a derivative of the mindset that's been the problem for Japan for for twenty five years now. And that's <laughs> what they've been trying to shake. And, and, yeah, I was just going to mention Japan. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's stunning to me that look, Grant, if you and I had this discussion fifteen years ago, if we just look at the sovereign debt markets. I don't know about you, but I don't think I would have envisaged the situation that we have today. And at the same time, one with the level of complacency that exists, I, I would not have envisaged that being the case. And yet here we are today, Japan's just done what they've done. And we're sitting at what, 121? It just, it boggles the mind that we that we find ourselves in this situation of such enormous excesses in, in firstly in the sovereign debt markets, but then translated into so many other markets because it's the pricing of risk that has been affected. And so literally everything um, surrounding it gets a different pricing level because if you're going to value cash, you're valuing it based on on different risk parameters. And if you're going to value housing, you're valuing it on different risk parameters. And private equity, venture capital, all of these sectors, if you want, tranches of the of the capital markets have been affected massively. And, and the question really is, to me, in my mind, how long does that last? We all know we all know what the sort of end game looks like, and we know that trees can't grow to the moon. But navigating between here and there is is our challenge. Yes, uh, look, I think if if you interfere with the cost of capital, as you've just described, you interfere you interfere with every single transaction that takes place on the planet every day. Period. So, of course, every single um, transaction is is either being made. Uh, under erroneous pretenses, or is being delayed while people think through the ramifications of these of these interferences. So it, it's perfectly natural for this to happen. But but uh, but there are you know there are there are a bunch of cliched sayings that we keep hearing in the last sort of six seven years. You know, like kicking the can down the road, this kind of stuff. But but the analogy of the boiling frog is is probably the most apt one at the moment. When you talk about rates in Japan, you talk about the sovereign bond markets. We haven't just woken up here. We haven't just been dropped in here. This has been an incremental move, and each each increment um, only moves the needle a little bit until at, at some point this is all going to snap back. And maybe this move by the Japanese to negative interest rates, uh, I think that might be a tipping point of sorts. What was fascinating to me when they made the announcement, you saw the Nikkei fall 900 points. That was the first reaction it made. And it recovered. Uh, yeah, it bounced and it went up, but it, it didn't quite regain its high at the, at the beginning of the day. But those those instant reactions to um, to moves by governments, th- there's there's always a lot of information in those. And so the the market's gut instinct was that this was a bad thing, and it fell. And so once the spin doctors got in and the press got in and the media coverage came out and they talked about how this would reflate asset prices, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, it bounced. But but the path of least resistance after that announcement was very, very clearly down in a big way. And so it's going to be really interesting this next week because it's quite possible that that move may ultimately fail. And if it does, it's going to force a rethink amongst a lot of uh, policymakers as to the, the benefit, the possible benefits of, of negative, negative interest rates. Now, 
the, the Japanese doing that puts pressure on the Chinese. So it, 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 it really ratchets up this currency war again. There are so many unintended consequences for every decision these guys are making now. And their decisions are getting more and more desperate as time goes by and they don't get the results they're expecting. Now, anyone who, who studies real-world economics has a pretty good understanding of why they're not getting the results they're not getting. I mean, you don't even need to study economics. If, you're, if you study history, you understand why they're not getting the results they want to get. But that's not really an impediment to them trying to do more. And I think, as I said, I think this move by the BOJ last week uh, is one to watch very, very carefully. Because if this fails, uh, and again, we saw the yen certainly had a decent move, fell 2% against the dollar. It's a big move for a currency. But it hasn't taken out its previous lows. And so it's, it's going to be very instructive to watch now what happens with the Japanese currency, the Japanese equity market, and the, the competing currencies around Asia because the, the glove has been thrown down again by the Japanese and, and markets are going to have to react and so are other central banks. And the way they react is going to be very important. It's interesting you talk about that because purely on a technical level, the yen at this point actually looks like it's made a head and shoulders top and should rally, which is counterintuitive to what they're doing. They're trying to destroy the value of the yen, and they're trying to reinflate asset markets. So it's kind of interesting that they've had this monetary policy move, which has failed to do what they anticipated it would do. And then on a pure technical basis, the market wants to um, wants to buy yen. You know, again, it's the sort of unintended consequences, and you have so many other factors around the world that you're looking at. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, Grant, if you and I were managing, let's, let's say we're managing a couple of billion dollars, or let's say we're managing, say, $10 billion, and we needed to move a quarter of our portfolio in cash, and we need it settled now. And we, what, do you, what do you do? Like, we've got euro, yen, dollar, right? And that's, that's literally it. Without moving the market and without hurting our positions, if we wanted to move it quickly, it's euro, yen, dollar. And that's just a, it's a beauty pageant of really ugly girls. <laughs> Well, look, I, th- I think uh, the, the, the yen, you know, it's, it's interesting. People, I think, are confusing success in devaluing the yen with uh, uh, the strong dollar. And it'd be very interesting to see where the yen would be had the dollar not been quite, quite so strong. Uh, and so when you look at that chart and you look at where it's reached, people think, well, you know, they've got it to you know, 120, 123. They've reached these sort of levels. Next stop's 130. Well, how much of that is success from the Bank of Japan, and how much of it is a knock-on effect from the strength of the dollar? I would posit that it's a lot more of the latter it's, it's, than people yep. are perhaps understanding. And so this move by the Japanese, okay, it's great, but if the dollar turns around, which you know a lot of very smart people think it will do at some point, I, I think when it turns around, it will be pretty dramatic. I think it may have a little further to go yet. But at some point, the dollar is going to turn around, and the Japanese are at – negative interest rates now, and they might find through no fault of their own and through nothing they've got any control over that the dollar goes lower at the same sort of speed it's gone up, which if you look at the long-term chart of the dollar is what it always does. It never goes up and then gradually reverts. It goes straight up and straight down again. Mm. That's going to that's gonna cause all sorts of problems with the Japanese. And uh, you know, I, I just think these guys, the central bankers all around the world, have been slowly backing themselves into corner after corner uh, you know, each one of those would back themselves into a different corner. And the market can see the corners behind them. We can see the corners. They're walking backwards towards them. They can't see them. We can see just how close these corners are getting. And I think now the uh, yeah, we can we can see Kuroda's shadow against the wall now of the corner he's backing into. And uh, that's a really bad place for him to be. 
Yeah, I mean, what we're dealing with here is it's probability, right? There's never any certainties in yeah. markets. And any time that you think you have certainty, you need to have a decent time frame. <laughs> because yeah. there are some things that are certain. It is certain that the enormous debt bubble that we have will deflate and it'll either explode or it'll deflate. At this point, I think the you know, a gradual deflation that is manageable is probably out of the question. I think we're too far down the road. But that doesn't mean that we have a, a time frame necessarily to work with. So it's a matter of probability on all fronts. And if you took, so we talk about the Japanese, and then you've got you know the elephant in the room, which is their not-so-friendly neighbors, the Chinese, and what is taking place there in terms of their credit markets and the massive capital suckings that is that are coming out of that place. I mean, I was in Hong Kong not so long ago speaking with bankers and trust fund manager guys, and a lot of these guys are completely inundated with with demand to structure capital transactions and really just get 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 money out. So if if you kind of think through what that means for the Japanese as well, it's it's this relative issue because if the Chinese either let their currency go and let the markets dictate where they where it settles or if they gradually manage some sort of devaluation, then on a relative basis, Japan is is in a worse off position. And so, so is South Korea and so are many of the other Asian partners. And then all of this comes back to a topic that you, you brought up at the start, which is gold. So gold had this for the last five years. We've been fairly strong downward trend. But where you're looking for that asymmetry in markets, um, it's, it's, a, it's one that we're looking quite closely at together with things like uranium, even ag. These are markets which have been hit hit really hard. And at some point, they will turn, as they always do. So I'm curious as to the guys that you're speaking with, what are their views on, on precious metals and things like, call it hard assets? Well, I mean, look, precious metals is something, you, when you talk about getting confused between imminent and inevitable precious metals is the poster child for that i think anyone that does the mental work around it it's it's tough to see any reasons why you shouldn't own some gold i mean mistakes people make are are getting too big in in one asset whether it's gold or or whether it's anything else getting too big in one asset is always a dangerous thing to do so there's a a lot of people who were so convinced that uh, that gold was the right play um and I think they were right. I think everybody should own some gold. But the, the question with with every position is always sizing. It's always getting your position size right so that you can stay in it when you're wrong and you can press the bet when you're right. Um, talking to smart money, I've yet to find anyone who I would consider smart money who is bearish gold. So a lot of people don't care about it. I did a presentation about this um, a little while ago. Uh, but But people who care about it really care about it and they understand the job it does in in protecting your wealth. So I think everything that's being done to combat the deflation, uh, the deflationary pressures in in the economy is pro-gold. There's no doubt about that. It's not happening yet. Um, And I don't think uh, there's an awful lot of confusion in my mind as to why that is. It's, It's just because not enough people care. It's a fairly small market it's something that people can't value you either follow it you either understand it or you don't and if you don't really follow it and understand the reasons why you'd want to own it and you try and value it as as any kind of other asset then sure okay there's no cash flow and it costs money to store and all these kind of things we all understand the negative arguments for gold i think you bring up a good point in terms of there's you've got the smart money 
who either know and understand the role that gold plays and they own it accordingly. If you if you think about the sort of 80-20 principle, that's that's the 20% of the market, which doesn't move the market necessarily. And this is probably true of Apple stock, Google, I mean, bonds, you name it. The, the vast majority of people land up essentially being, um, being followers. They're the 80% and they will move the market where they get interested. So it, it's almost, it becomes a self-fulfilling pro- cycle in that it doesn't matter really what the fundamentals look like. You know, we saw this in housing, right? The fundamentals didn't matter. Because you still, not only did you have individual investors that were buying houses, but you had money managers who were justifying things that were now, when you look at it, clearly not justifiable. But they did, they, they, they justified it. And people make that mistake in every business cycle. And this is not an ordinary business cycle that we're looking at. No, it's not. But it's, it's absolutely not. But it's it's quite easy where you look at you know the fundamentals of any particular stock. I mean, like we we were just recently looking at Royal Dutch Shell, which is one of the largest corporations in the world, and we went out and um, we were buying five year call options on this with you know, vol vol was around I think it was seven percent on a five year call. I mean the, the, that stock can move seven percent in a day, yeah. and and. I don't know what idiot sold us those options, but literally three or four days later, we're up to a 15% fall. So there's a company which has got fundamentals. You can you can value it. You can look at the assets. You can look at the cash flows. But are the vast majority of if is the vast majority of capital in the world using that mental exercise? And I I'd, I'd say no, they're not. I'd say probably 20% of the market, if that is is going through that mental exercise and the balance just follow. And then you've got the media, the, you know, which, which drives interest and, and opinions one way or the other. And the way that our brains are, are, are wired is that it's very difficult for us to use the top part of our brain, which requires a lot of intensive thinking, and it's very energy hungry. And the bottom part of your brain, which is, which is the one that um, we utilized when we came out of a cave and we were chased by lions, needs to just, it just needs to know a few very simple things. Um, is it going to hurt me? Do I mate with it? Do I do I like it? It's 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 a very it's, it's a yes or no answer, and that's easy thinking. It doesn't take much much mental capacity. It's like stepping into the street and you look around. There's a car coming. You go, okay, it's going to kill me. Step out of the street, but it doesn't take a step further of you know what is the car made of? How does it function? What is you know what is the road? Is, is there's a machine inside it? What is that? How does it work? That's that's all higher level thinking. So the vast majority of people don't want to do that it's, it takes too much energy for your brain so they just they they, they they go after the is it going to hurt me is it going to benefit me and if they see literally a stock going up and they see positive news reports from jim cramer screaming at you on television then then that's the answer that they need which is your your lazy brain operating so i think that you know you get the that's that's kind of the mental mindset that that runs in the markets and it opens up opportunities obviously, because it creates massive inefficiencies. And if I look across the markets today, we just have we have these enormous inefficiencies, Grant, which on the one side are, are truly frightening. <laughs> but then on the other side, I think to myself, has there been a time in the markets before where we've, where we've had such sort of asymmetric opportunities on uh, to go the other way? And I'm not sure that that's the case with with a with this massive distortion of market pricing in all assets it's created asymmetry in in particular areas which i find intellectually really really stimulating you know i think that from a portfolio structuring perspective to me 
and, and you can shoot holes in this. It makes a lot more sense for me to go putting the vast majority of my capital into cash or cash equivalents and then really not bothering about the basic broad markets not and really just going after the sort of 10, 15, 20% of the market that provides these anomalous returns, you know, whether it's the yuan um, devaluing, whether it's sovereign debt, resource markets that have been decimated. These are the kind of areas which the risk reward doesn't necessarily make sense to me on, on the positive side. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it's interesting you bring up um, the housing markets when we're talking about gold, because if you, if you think about think about what happened in, in 06, 07, going into 08, or 05, 06, going into 07, probably more accurately, you know, we saw a lot of these paper contracts on physical assets, all these mortgages build up, and people were buying uh, more than one home and levering them up. And so you had all these derivatives on underlying assets. And what happened when we ended up getting the crash, we had a massive oversupply of the physical asset. And so the prices collapsed. The debt couldn't sustain it. You had a massive flooding of physical assets onto the, onto the market and the prices fell. You know, now exactly the opposite is happening with gold. You've got an ever-increasing uh, amount of paper contracts on what's, fairly, what's a fairly static physical uh, underlying asset and the gold production goes up probably 1%, maybe 2% a year. Um, it's going to go up less with prices down here because people are just going to stop uh, stop mining it's just not economically viable but the derivatives keep going so what you saw happen to the housing market uh, because of an oversupply of physical goods you are going to see in reverse in the gold market because you are going to suddenly have a, a massive um, deficit in the physical commodity and all the people that are going to want their their contracts uh, to be good and they're going to want to take uh, possession of the underlying assets and it's just not going to be there so, you know, I think you can expect to see a 2008 in reverse in the gold markets once, once the trigger, whatever it may be, and we just don't know what that trigger is going to be. Uh, every step towards negative rates is another sort of brick in the wall of positivity for gold. We just don't know what that final brick in the wall is going to be. But when it happens, um, and it will happen, uh, I, I think it's clear what we're going to see and that that are, is going to be a, a, an enormous amount of people trying to perfect an asset that there are multiple claims on. And obviously only one of those claims is going to be valid. And there's going to be a lot of disappointing people who thought they were protected, who thought they held an asset, who, who don't. And at that point, what do you do? Do you do you pay up to go and get hold of the asset? Do you Do you take your lumps? Do you sue people? I don't know. All I know is when this thing plays out, there's going to be a lot more people wanting gold than can actually physically take possession of it at prices around this sort of level, and that is going to drive the price higher. So, you know, again, it comes back to positioning. If you have the right size position in gold then, uh, and the right entry point, I mean, anyone that bought gold um, in August of 2011 has had a horrendous experience. Um, but it, it tends not to be the quote unquote, I don't want to be pejorative, but it doesn't tend to be the smart money that buys stuff at market tops. It tends to be the crowd. And I think that's what we saw. We saw this surge into gold and a lot of people got pulled in at the wrong time, paid for it at the top, and they've been hurting ever since. But if you talk to people that really understand gold, you know, they, these guys have been buying it since 2000, 2001. And so their their average cost is is you know way below a thousand bucks. So they're not sitting there worried. They're not really stressed about this. It's it's frustrating. It's 
kind of confusing. Um, but uh, the, the people I know who've been buying gold relentlessly for 15 years are just quietly accumulating as much as they can here because they just see that you know I've got a whole new physical asset. I'm averaging my cost. And at some point when all this uh, bad stuff that everybody's talking about comes to pass, I'm going to have the asset I want. And you know what? If it doesn't come to pass, if by some miracle we get out of this, I still have an asset that's money good. I mean, the price will be debatable, but I can promise you one price it will never trade at, and that's zero. So, uh, you know, I don't mind holding a percentage of my assets in that. I mean, you're looking at that, I guess, almost from a value perspective type of mindset, right? But let's imagine you're purely a trader, right? And you don't care about fundamentals. You don't care about global macro, anything like that. When you look at the cost of entry at this point in time, it's it's a very favorable trade. Just as I was mentioning, you know, company like Royal Dutch Shell, the cost of entry, I, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to Royal Dutch Shell in five years' time, but what I do know is that we've got the world's most important commodity being oil, one of the largest companies in the world that is a proxy, somewhat of a proxy for oil. And this, this commodity is not going to go away, at least not within a five to 10 year time frame. It's possible that it does go away entirely with new technologies and, and so on and so forth. But that I don't see that taking place in the next couple of decades. And so your cost of entry for that is just asymmetrically cheap. And so you get the same sort of thing. I mean, if we look at the resource markets, the TSX, for example, which is down now roughly 80%, that, you know, I did some analysis probably a couple of years ago, uh, which I wrote about. And we took, we, we, we took the markets which have been down 50%, and then we took those which are down 80%. And we, we had completely agnostic. I mean, we weren't trying to pick markets. We just said, okay, let's go through history and look at when markets are down 50%, what is it? What does that particular market look like in three years' time? And when a market is down eighty percent, what does that market look like in three years' time? When it hits that point, right? I can't remember exactly what the fifty percent one was, but on the eighty percent, the median, and because this was taken across a number of different data samples, the median was a three hundred percent return, right, in three years. And yeah. so that's that sort of asymmetry. Even if you're wrong, if let's say you've got ten. Uh, 10 markets that are down 80% and you place capital, um, you say got a million dollars and you put $100,000 into each of those positions. Is that a better trade than, you know, just trying to follow the, the broad market and keep your money in mutual funds and things like that? I just, that's just not a trade that makes any sense to me. It's certainly in these, in these markets as we are today. And that asymmetry that we're talking about there exists more today than at any other time in, in my career that I've looked at, in large part due to central bank manipulations and, um, and interference in the cost of capital. Very, very interesting time to be alive and to be an investor. Grant, Real Vision TV, you've got a lot of exciting things taking place. Can you give me a little bit of insight into what we're going to see in 2016? Uh, yeah, Chris. I mean, look, Real Vision is a project that Raoul and I started um, a couple of years ago now almost, and we've been, we've been up live just over a year. And the whole idea was just to try and bring a little bit of truth back to finance and help people understand what was really going on by tapping into um, you know, a body of professionals all around the world who really are the brightest minds in the world. You know, Finance has been sucking up the best and the brightest for, for you know, 30, 40 years. Um, and they're all out there and they're all playing their trade. And so this, this idea of bankers getting a bad name is... Uh, 
you know, it's a little bit wider than Mark when you actually dig down into it. So we just wanted to try and build a platform where smart professionals could actually share their thinking with uh, with the investing public and try and educate them a bit more so that 2008 didn't catch people out again. And so far, um, you know, we've 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 managed to do that, and the excitement uh, that our that our subscriber base is is um, is generating is fantastic. I mean, for for this year, we've uh, we've got plenty of plans to broaden the offering and and uh as you know well enough uh there are so many brilliant people out there in this business all around the world and we're going to get to as many of them as we can and and uh, allow them to share their thinking with everybody well it's been a massive resource for me grant knowing quite a few other people has been one thing being able to speak to them continuously but when you guys launched this i was my eyes were open to a whole host of people that i'd never even heard of before much like how you met raul there's a lot of guys lurking behind the scenes who don't, they, you know, they've never been on CNBC or any of these main mass media outlets. And getting their insights has been really, really valuable, especially where an opposing viewpoint, right? Um, because that's, that is, I think that's one of the most valuable things that I've found out of Real Vision is you can contrast different viewpoints with a sound reasoning as to why uh, the particular person might have a different viewpoint. And that stress testing of one's own thinking cannot be underestimated really really valuable so i'm excited for what you gents are doing and i congratulate you on taking the leap and building what you've built so far and i'm really looking forward to what you've got in the years ahead yes thank you mate i mean you bring up a great point there about the people you've never heard of and that was a big a big thing we wanted to achieve because as you said there are so many people that you you would never get access to and they're out there and they're happy to share their thinking uh, and the value isn't always in the household names. The value is oftentimes in, in getting the thoughts of, of those guys, those guys that you you identified so so clearly there, the, the people that, but for this project, you wouldn't have uh, you wouldn't have heard of. So uh, we're going to keep trying to bring them to you. Thank you for tuning in. Capex Big Question Podcast is sponsored by Seraph, an exclusive private global network of individual investors and family offices dedicated to growing their wealth exponentially by investing in game-changing global trends. To learn more about Serif, go to serif.vc. That's S-E-R-A-P-H dot V for Vicky, C for Charlie.